Hi there and welcome to another episode of the Security Chips podcast, the Data Security Council of India's very special forum where we attempt to explore the nuances of data protection and cybersecurity as well as inspire those who are on their path to become the next generation of cybersecurity and data privacy leaders. So in today's episode, I attempt to uncover the journey of Ms. Aba Tiwari, the newly appointed DPO of Vistara. So prior to this, my very special guest Aba was also the DPO of Renault. So do stick around if you want to learn more about her very interesting journey and her illustrious career. Without further ado, here's security chips. always felt that you know you would have like years of experience but i'm pretty surprised your 2023 pass out i'm very impressed with her work mature for my age but immature in my looks <laughs> apparently <laughs> <laughs> but, but Aba, that's the years of wisdom that you have gathered na so how was it see um, 2023 and then you also had covid in between and not sure if you've missed your classes um been there with your uh, friends how was it don't get me started with that because there's definitely been that gap because it's we started with we started with normal life as it is in my first year and then second year also a unique thing about my journey is that i happened to do my law school in assam as i mentioned so around that time we also had a uh, protest ah, so yes. we ha- also had to leave college a bit early and at the same time the next semester right when we came back there was covid so <laughs> then we missed like those critical two years of like almost two years bonding pure uh-huh, pure, pure uh-huh. Bond- bonding but online classes were pretty interesting so but and i also got to do a lot of amazing remote internships which okay. dealt with privacy okay. so so you know those days when i was in law school and i completed i passed out in 2009 so you talk about remote internship like what is that <laughs> i think the concept of remote settled in only after uh, covid the fact that you can be anywhere and you can still do a lot of work i think that definitely came in, um, and in fact even right now as i transitioned from a student to a working professional i'm still working remotely yeah 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 so, yeah 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 I I really like how that transition but at the same time as I mentioned it's pretty overwhelming I'm sure yeah, I'm sure again I I felt like the uh, the reason behind why I chose this particular podcast and this particular person is that you've always been an inspiration and I think I speak for everyone and especially people who will be viewing this episode is that i think a lot of people are inspired by you i mean thank you so much dipika but i i guess uh, <laughs> we're not just doing the best we can and uh, i don't know i'm humbled i'm overwhelmed uh, we met at uh, bangalore and uh, that was the first that was one of those presentations we where we came up working with that uh, special interest group on uh, right to privacy and workspace so trust me on this dipika there's a lot that we learn from people around us and connecting Definitely. with the privacy community which is i think evolving now so you sort of know everybody who's there in that space and then everybody is adding a lot of value to the community right so we all somewhere are growing together this whole so i think uh, if i if i have to put it uh, you know very like clearly um 2007 or 
when I was in law school, one of my teachers said that this, so we always knew that, you know, that strategic information has to be kept confidential. After like three years in law school, you know, strategic information has to be kept confidential. There's something called confidentiality of a lot of information that has to be protected and that is protected by all organizations, right? You have a sense to that. But when you talk about personal data, those days, uh, also because the there was internet, but not at the same level not at the same pace as we have it today definitely those were the days when you had those phones where probably facebook or instagram wouldn't work so the social media was hadn't still you know hadn't caught up as much those were the days when you had uh, those email ids on hotmail or uh, you yahoo. know yahoo and uh, <laughs> uh, you you had those orkut so you know we would say uh, and i and i clearly remember that uh, back in school we would write diaries and we never wanted anybody to read it but then we yeah. had Orkut and you'd write comment and we'll poke people and then you'd want, why did you not see what I had posted? <laughs> you know, so there was this shift in generation that was happening. But nonetheless, so one of my teachers said that there's something called uh, like personal data has to be protected. And uh, there's something called safe harbor principle in the United States. And that got me thinking. Why, you know, safe harbor relates to ocean and ship and it's it's supposed to be, it's supposed to be, you know, why, why would you need safe harbor principle for protecting personal data? That really didn't make sense when my teacher said, you know, this is something that we're going to present at our conference. But nonetheless, you get working and I researched a bit and I tried understanding what is the whole concept about it. Why personal data? That opened up another chapter. And that's, that, that's something that drew me to the fact that the, the uh, word human right, as we had understood or as I had understood in the most traditional manner until then, had a new definition, had a new meaning. And privacy was inherent part of it. Right. The irony was that we were still at a very nascent stage. And so there was not much of... Um, you know, you know, not much of literature that was around, that was available around the concept of personal data. Definitely. And I, and I think back when you were in law school, you wouldn't have even expected the government right now to come out with an act which specifically deals with protecting people's personal data. Right? Not at all. So it was, so I remember there's this, uh, so while one of, one of those days when we would uh, research on internet and and we'll just try and figure out that, you know, why, how, how is it that privacy becomes an inherent part of, so what is, what is the element of privacy? Is this a property that you can own? Right. It's not a property, but it is, it is part of you. It is extension of you. Maybe we did not have those wearable devices those days. Right. Uh, all that you had was a phone, but then the tracking mechanisms on those phones were not as relevant as they are today. So I think the, f the first memory of uh, why right to privacy must be there was from that article which I had read back then to participate in that conference which said, so there were like two lawyers and they decided, they they wrote an article on, uh, you know, right to be let alone and this was Samuel Brandis and his friend and this was in Harvard Law Journal. It was one of the articles that was published back in 1890s. The concept was that when camera, with advent of camera, now, there were celebrities, there have been celebrities, people in spotlight all the time. And then there are stages where the public, so industrial revolution is gone. Um, there is a shift in the manner the world works. 
and uh, the larger interest was you have certain people who have the spotlight but what is it that they eat who do they meet where do they go how do they spend their time and there was a lot of interest in people so when cameras came up so earlier people would go to studios and get themselves like their pictures will be painted by an artist which meant that they have they'll have to like sit for hours together but with camera it was like one snap so let's say i knew going for a coffee and if there's somebody who has a camera they'll say all right abha and dipika have had a coffee break today and it was this time and then this is published by the newspapers this became a nuisance mm. and when this became a nuisance there was a need to differentiate between life of people when they are in public spaces versus life of people when they are in private spaces so right. maybe i and you would not want to discuss our life when we are in private space but if there is a collaboration that we have to do then we do it on a public space which is known to everybody so with this nuisance coming coming in and cameras being the reason behind that the whole concept of right to be let alone gained importance years later you know um can the government can the uh, can those in power use methods let's say we use telephones and it is fairly common we use mobile phones and we feel that we would so there are reasons why we would want to protect um the data that we share with people and 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 there is you know um, i think we should dwell into the fact why we need to keep our personal data private it belongs to us i must have the ownership i must have the control on who i share this with i may not be comfortable in sharing this data with everybody because that may cause potential harm to me including reputational loss so whoever i share this data with i must be able to bridge a trust i must be able to bridge build a trust so somebody who is going to process my data should be able to give me the assurance that this data is processed in a certain manner with this data so let's say you know i have a strong affiliation to a certain organization or to a certain body or to a certain whatever in the ecosystem there is a likelihood as we were talking off screen of backstage there is a likelihood that this this information can be manipulated and used right and when i say this we saw another subject coming up where you know uh, so right to be let alone was back in 1990s an article but it was not it like by the time it went to a court in a matter this right was not really recognized right so in another case law the government deployed a certain mechanism to wiretap a conversation and this wiretapping was done without the knowledge of the person who was uh, on the on the telephone let's also understand there was another party on the other side of the telephone who had no clue about it at all and who probably had nothing to do with the criminal justice system but their conversation was recorded and produced as evidence another concept came up how much of surveillance in a way how much of authority in a way and how much of power should anybody have to process your personal data without your knowledge definitely so uh thanks for that abha and i must admit as 
someone with a legal background myself i i really resonated with the facts when you really spoke about the ethical considerations and the legal considerations and 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 i really just resonated with the whole journey that you described so um and i must admit that i really find the intersection between the ethical considerations and data protection particularly fascinating so that being said um in the same way how has your legal background shaped your approach to privacy and and at the same time how has it really influenced you in making that pivotal career choice into transitioning into the role of a dpo so like i said uh, data personal data always had my heart this was perhaps the first choice uh back in 2008 to uh 2007 2008 to while i'd seen a lot of and and i have like and there is lot more to learn and there's so much more that can that's there in the legal space in in any case but knowing that right to privacy is inherent to human right and it can be distinguished and differentiated from how a how human right has been understood in the, in the traditional concept privacy always had my heart data always had my heart so then fast forward to 2014 2015 we had all those um, snowden happened wikileaks happened then cambridge analytica happened and not withstanding gdpr came in so this was a time when the sort of data everybody was so you know i think i woke up to a time i woke up in the generation or i uh, in you know where uh, personalization was of services was was given a lot of importance customer feedback was uh, given a lot of importance uh, the players in the market were constantly trying to battle for attention of the consumers and consumers working they continue to be consumers are the king but at what cost right so when we had gdpr shaping up and it was you know between 2015 2018 i sort of knew that this is exactly the space where i want to be and then suddenly i think 2021 diwali we had generative ai you know chat gpt coming up and generative ai coming up we had some space around deep fake before that and the momentum that it caught with generative ai i think um, this shifted my whole choice of making this career decision of um, trying to blend in technology with law and to answer your question on uh, how legal uh, backdrop helps is because as lawyers you're mindful aware and you try to see to 360 degree uh, you take a 360 degree approach to all that you're trying to do so when you're evaluating a technology for example and then you you know you know what what is existing what is what could possibly go wrong it powers your journey as a dpo it empowers you to understand the nuanced concepts like i was saying right to privacy goes back to human rights it's an right. essential element of human right and just to pick up on that term that you use that privacy is an inherent right so keeping that in mind and of course you narrating your entire experience with the development and the jurisprudential development of privacy that being in mind you as a dpo of organizations and be it renault or now be it singapore airlines atara singapore airlines so 
do you believe there's also an inherent ethical responsibility for companies when they're handling user data absolutely and it's a very good question dipika i would like take a moment to share this with you here the role of a dpo existed i think um, if i if my memory serves me right from it derives it stems out of german legislations then gdpr caught up and we had something that you know controllers will have to have a dpo processors will have to have a dpo not necessarily a a qualification per se that is prescribed but then there is lot of detailing in the recital and in the law itself as to how they must be uh, experts in the domain somebody who is able to balance out between the interest of lot of stakeholders somebody who has a lot of independence to deliver what they deliver somebody who is able to monitor so somebody who knows the law somebody who knows the sector somebody who knows the business somebody who's who has an overview to be able to say how how the data should be processed because like i keep uh, emphasizing on it uh, it is a data subject somewhere at the center of it um it is particularly so the ethical part is particularly important and i sh- share a couple of examples with you one organization had a product and this product uh, was given to beta testers so those uh, so beta testers sort of uh, the whole idea was that how do you make your product smarter right right so there are cameras on the product and when the product is navigating through a certain space it is constantly taking pictures it's taking those pictures and then these pictures are being labeled so let's say if i tell you how do you navigate in between the space that we are sitting and there's a product that has to navigate you know somebody has to label it this is a chair this is a table and this is how you navigate so those beta testers where they sign an agreement that all right i am and they're not they're not layman huh they're the people who have sufficient un- understanding of how this testing happens and then one fine morning somebody woke up to find that a lot of their intimate pictures were put up on the internet were there all over the internet and they had no clue about it and this pictures landed in another jurisdiction altogether oh no right investigation happened uh tried figuring out how what went wrong i'll not get into what happened in that investigation but the ethical part i would want to emphasize upon is that with every product or a service like i said there is a person involved a human involved it's the data of that human which is transversing so let's say i have put everything as as say a privacy officer as a dpo i have put like everything is compliant everything has been put in place there is still a residual risk right and if this risk is not addressed it is likely to cause unexplainable harm some part of this harm can never be undone i share another couple of examples with you um in another jurisdiction there was this ai backed tool that was deployed the purpose of this tool was to raise alarm on fraud matters or suspected fraud matters so that wherever there is a case that a social benefit has been taken not rightfully those cases could be flagged and an investigation could be carried out intentions are all perfect this is the way how it should be but then the data set that was used or for whatever reason the bias that crept in in that system 
marked a certain category of people who are likely to cause these frauds okay marked a certain income group a certain gender that led to now based on that decisions were made and that caused a lot of uh, discomfort to those who were pointed out who were put in that watch group and many of them probably did not even have the resources to fight back years later it was discovered that the data set or the output of this ai backed tool had a bias had okay. discriminated so dipika you can never go back in time and remove the bias mm. we had another instance where a certain tool will pick up let's say there are like historically and i know i know i am and these are my absolute personal views a certain gender is doctor or a certain gender is nurse historically this has been the case there's nothing wrong with it it is just that this is how the data set probably is available right now if a screening has to happen and if a tool is asked a likelihood that the tool will say that this gender will be this this gender will be that which is not true both of us know it is not true so when we deploy the like when we deploy tools when we evolve products or when we get into processes compliance is a like is a huge bit of it but ethics is a larger bit of it and this question becomes all the more relevant when we talk about generative ai couple of days ago i was you know reading through a certain article and they said that that voice of artists work of artists so that's constantly it is scraped then a database gets created so like say you write in a particular manner and i have infinite capabilities because i'm machine i have infinite capabilities i scrape and i understand how you write i don't copy what you write but i create a lot of content just like how you write maybe some artists who are part of certain associations will be able to fight back but then there are a lot more who will not be able to fight back now think of it if i manipulate the manner in which uh, i write while you know essentially it's all about it's all about how you've been like your original work bit of my man, like i am a machine and bit of manipulation i have the capability of destroying your reputation altogether without you doing anything right so how much of recognition do you accord to um, these sort of technologies because they can cause irreparable harms not necessarily that you can go and find a remedy under the law but the question of ethics surely remains definitely aba and i really like the fact that the way you look at it is that you tend to humanize a data subject and you don't look at it as mere <laughs> no no not yeah. at all there is a human at the center of it so as privacy advocates as privacy lawyers as privacy officers we have to be always mindful of the fact that our act and omission is going to have an impact on a human right on a human being right right and so the question of i think consideration of ethics should be the first point before compliance kicks in for sure but i think to go to, to go back to the point and again thank thank you again so much for those wonderful illustrations but to go back to the point where you spoke about the multiple stakeholders that are at play here right so how do you really go about navigating that very very complex maze 
as a data protection officer. You know, Deepika, we have this thing and I, um, forgive me when I say this. Have you had that experience when you open your closet and say, the clothes are literally falling all over you. And then you say, uh, I still have nothing. I still need to find something. <laughs> yeah. I find the same thing happening in a lot of organizations. We are sitting over tons of data. Tons of data. Because historically, we've never had a retention policy in a lot of laws. That's a fact. Nobody has ever told us to delete a lot of data because data is data and it is there. And there is a huge cost to it. Huh? There's a huge cost to deletion. There's a huge cost to storage also. And there is an absolutely ridiculous amount that gets added if there is a data breach. But nonetheless, we're sitting on huge, huge, huge data. In absence of there being a retention timeline all the time, in absence of there being a retention schedule, in absence of there being a need for data deletion, Definitely. The amount of data that we have gathered is huge. Now, there is an inherent inertia. I don't want you to delete my data because I don't know I might wake up like 20 years later and I, I might need all of this. Which is not true. But then there is a mindset which says that I might need this data at some point in time. So, forget the retention laws. For my own analytics purposes, I am not ready to part with it. Larger interest. Second uh, interest that comes in. You don't have the timelines. How do you define that I have to delete this data after these many years or this is where I defined, okay, end point. It was with GDPR, we said, minimize the collection. And we said minimize the collection, not because you minimize the collection so that you have, it minimize the collection so that when there is a breach, all of that is not lost. The lesser data you have, the lesser data is lost. I mean, it is directly proportional. That principle data minimization came in, data retention came in. To answer your question again, the number of stakeholders that you navigate through is one is you who will say, don't collect any data, be happy. But that is not how business works. You will have to have a lot of data. You will say, minimize data collection. Then somebody will say, no, I need a little more. You'll say, okay, then you'll retain it only for a certain period. They'll say, no, I have to retain it for a long, longer period. So there are a lot of conflicting interests, but somewhere i think and then cybersecurity or infosec departments coming up and saying what are the methodologies that i have to deploy so that this data is available in the like this data is available this data is accessible but then this data is not prone to unauthorized access you also have um, regulatory bodies in the ecosystem not as much today but i'm sure coming up you also have those data subjects whose data is there with you so probably they have a stronger power to negotiate because there's a lot of data subjects, rights that have been granted to data subjects. And not to forget that you always, you could be called upon to defend yourself in a court of law. And in order to establish that defense, in order to be able to defend yourself, you will need all of that data. So when you're navigating through this maze, you have to, you know, circumvent through all these stakeholders and maybe keep everything, not the same page, not the same time. But maybe you'll have to keep everybody together while making a conscious decision of how you determine the data life cycle. That sounds really interesting. But uh, again, to go back on the point where you said that, you know, there comes a part where you have to really balance multiple interests that are at play. So I really want to know your thoughts on when people say, you know, data minimization is also 
uh, it's a myth that data minimization is is essentially not great for business but at the same time i've heard multiple people say that when you talk about data minimization it's also you know you're cutting down on the number of data that a business essentially processes so that in fact is actually great for the business so mm-hmm. what do you feel about this i so, have had practical situations so anybody who says that uh, um, data minimization is not really the key i need to collect whatever i want to um i would ask them that uh, historically you have collected a lot of data please tell me all the places where you have used all the data and any data set which was sitting in your system which was not used technically means that the data was not required to be collected if you think that data minimization is not the key then i'll tell you please provision all the penalties that we have in your budget so when there is a loss see it's the time is we we no no longer talking about that there will be a breach and somebody else will suffer a breach no you will suffer a breach it's just about when will you suffer a breach you'll wake up to it tomorrow morning 10 days later but that is happening so please understand what is the risk surface area that you're willing to expose one number two how well are you going to proportionally justify the data that you collect versus the objective that you have to meet and number 3 for that objective you may have other data sets too so i participate in a lot of discussions and a lot of time i get this asked this question we all have that fancy idea right that uh, it should be fingerprint scan your fingerprint and life is easy scan your iris and life is easy absolutely well said scan it life is easy but you can replace a password you cannot replace a thumb scan you cannot replace an iris scan so when you are like if there is a this is why we say in order to meet the same objective try and understand which is the least intrusive method because when you lose the least intrusive method of meeting the same objective or with that data set it is far easier to recover otherwise the damage that could end up if you think this is expensive then try damage and you will know the results that being said aba um throughout this podcast you've highlighted very interesting facets that you've come about as a dpo but that being said uh, could you highlight the most challenging uh, moment from your experience as a dpo and i'm more interested to know what was that particular challenge and how you went about overcoming navigating it? that yeah. yeah so depika i'm not going to tell you what my kras are because a lot of a lot of the audience that is watching us that is likely to watch us will know what kras are i'll tell you of the practical difficulties because uh, we started somewhere in 2018 2019 and we still evolving uh, the privacy mindset is fairly new and so one of those first trainings that i had that i had so every time i had to curate a training i would try and understand my audience i would try and understand what will probably connect with them and as lawyers we deal with a lot of dry subjects this is not a dry subject but how do you make somebody understand that this is not a dry subject because it is still uh, you know unless you have that mindset this is still a dry subject so in the first trainings that i had and it was all about privacy and uh, right to privacy and why should it be protected after the whole session was over i still had lot of blank faces and i knew this job was not well done because the message was not conveyed the challenge was how do you shift the mindset 
so in the conversation when somebody comes up in the session when somebody comes up and saying look it's my data i'm happy to keep it keep it in public domain because i want uh, manufacturers or sellers or service providers to chase me i am the king my hardest part was to help them understand that when you do this probably you are not, you, you think that you are in power you think you are the king but you have no clue that there is that vulnerable part of you is there in the public domain and there is somebody who is selling you what they had to sell you it was not the choice that you had made from there on to a place where i asked my audience and i explained to them that just because you spoke about buying a laptop I told you or i'm sorry i mean not naming an organization but if your phone gave you that uh, you know please buy this laptop prices have dropped it is not a coincidence you didn't get lucky you were heard it was processed how many times do you know what kind of access have you given to your phone we love wearable devices we all have a lot of smart ecosystem in our homes your 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 there are there are conversations that you would not have in public you have it at home you feel secure because then you're you know confined to the four walls of your room but are you really safe when you say when something comes up that you know like our facebook page and coffees on us is the coffee really on them what have you traded so when in one of the discussions one of the training sessions i was able to put it up with examples i was able to share it with them and right after that got over so having this mindset shift where people understand that if i am consumer is the king but i got to be mindful of what i share with who and then after that conversation there are like people who come up to you and tell you hey i never knew i had given this access i have given this access i had given this access hey this is why i was getting this this is why this happened this was happening and next time when they go to a store and uh, make the decision of buying a gadget i'm not saying buying a gadget is wrong but when they make the decision of buying a gadget do not are you allowing it to do whatever it wants to do when you're downloading an application are you mindful of what you're downloading when you're installing a system are you mindful of what you're installing when you're publishing a photograph or publishing an something about yourself are you mindful of what you're publishing so my biggest challenge was to cause this mindset mindset shift and my perhaps my biggest achievement is every time i'm able to make the, this difference because then i believe that there is a message that gets conveyed and that's exactly the message that i wanted to give convenience does come at a cost and it's and it's great and it's honestly very admirable that you as in your capacity as the dpo also uh, try to influence building a privacy conscious environment within your organization so that's a great takeaway ava coming back to the point where we talk about individuals who aspire to be you someday ava so Uh, I want to really touch upon the learnings that you've had on the way. So, when you talk about coming to that level of leadership that you are in, so I want to really understand what sort of knowledge base that you cultivated in your journey, and I also want to uh, get an insight into how how much certifications helped you on the way. Ha! Huh. So, um, certifications are a great way. to learn you so behind every certification there is a thought process i don't endorse any particular certification at this point but certifications are surely a great way to learn 
However, like I said, there is an informational ecosystem. So just because I have done something that suits me, may not suit you. So we as lawyers have a certain mindset and we choose a certain certificate. Somebody from an infosec background may not choose the same thing because we have our own strengths. And I think um, we must, um, learning always continues, but it is always, you know, it is always great to leverage on your strengths. Certificates will help you learn, but are they enough? I'm again asked this question a lot of time and thank you for bringing this out by a lot of uh, those who are right out of law school and who are looking or those who are at mid senior level and are looking at getting into privacy domain or cybersecurity domain. Which certificate do I do that will help me get a job or that help that will help me do my job or that will help me find a certain uh, stature? The answer is certification will only give you some information which is which would be academic in nature your learning is going to come from your environment your learning is going to come from all the developments that happens in your ecosystem which means that you constantly have to look out your you know you do a certification your laws would change so you have to read as lawyers you'll understand you have to read the new law you've learned how to deal with it two um another important part is that you you try and venture into spaces that are not yours or that you're not very confident with so you know when tesla defined cars it was no longer mechanical it's a software driven car right 10 years ago we always classified car as an automotive product a mechanical product today it's no longer a auto like a mechanical product it's a software driven vehicle we did not have the same A's of ecosystem that we have in our home. Hey, what is the weather outside? Uh, one of uh, the gadgets that we have. What is the weather? What is the temperature? How long will it take me to... We didn't, that voice thing was not there. It is there today. Our ecosystem is evolving. And we have to be, we have to be aware. We have to be well-read. We have to be well-researched. Not just around us, but the manner in which it, in which it is shaping up across the globe. So I think that will help and um, the more challenges you take, the more opportunities you will find. You have to just convert your challenges into opportunities. And coming back to that point where you really talked about how an automobile is not just an automobile anymore. Uh, how do you as a data protection officer again, when it comes to a considerable overlap of laws, so how do you really navigate that space of now being a DPO of, let's say, the automobile industry to now being the DPO of someone from the aviation industry. So how do you really go about the sectoral regulations I along think, with da data protection? I think no, it's there in every, like, you know, tomorrow if, if, I, if you ask me a question coming from pharma or if you ask me a question coming from retail, the key is that you have to rationalize and when we rationalize, it is the strictest that you choose. More than that, beyond that, there is a risk appetite that organizations have. And then there is always a residual risk that is covered by, say, cybersecurity insurances or risk insurances, risk assurances that, that goes with it. What I've learned in, uh, and I have, I've also been venturing a bit into health uh, all by all from, from a, you know, from a perspective that I wanted to understand how the pharma or health sector works, how fintech sector works, how aviation works now, or how auto has been working, or 
there is an inherent nature of uh, technology creeping in and so there ha there must be an inherent nature of you trying to decode them at all possible times and terms and understand what consequences it can possibly have on people so um, don't be don't do not hesitate to just go up and read the terms and conditions of say a certain product which is available online you may not possibly buy that but just read through the terms and conditions of a product of some cloud service providers of how a code of conduct is con constructed and you will see that a lot of it will start making a lot of sense because then you will start seeing the holistic picture of the holistic uh, the, the, the 360 view of any activity that you do irrespective of the sectoral or the national regulation not just this keep an eye on the global regulations too keep an eye not just the law there are a lot of guidelines that are published keep an eye watch out for those guidelines too there are a lot of opinions that are published there are a lot of thoughts that are given by the in the academic uh, world read through that uh, too and you will see that it is constantly evolving one and then there is there is uh, a sort of connect between all of them right so this has truly been a very insightful discussion, Abba, and thank you so much for sharing that a slice of your life, if I may. And as parting words, Abba, uh, as many of our listeners, as you pointed out, might be in their early careers or are just in that phase of getting that certification or about to become a DPO. And essentially those who aspire to follow your footsteps. So... What would be your message for someone who someday would want to be a data protection officer? All of you are unique. All of us are unique. We have, we have our own journeys. I would say learn, gain and don't let an opportunity come. It might sound a bit hard because you're so as lawyers, probably you're venturing in IT space, you're venturing in health space. There are a lot of things that may not make sense to you immediately, but learn as much as you can. None of this is going to go waste. And one day you will appreciate all that you learn. And this is absolutely not difficult, absolutely not hard. And I obviously, if there is, there is support and then you always have the ecosystem, which is there, you can always come back, you can always connect and uh, just dive in. Thanks, Abba. And there you have it. As Abba Tiwari puts it, there are miles to go before you sleep. So Thank you again for tuning in and thank you, Abba, thank you so for being much, a very special guest for today. You continue to be an inspiration as I put it across in the beginning of this episode. So thank you again. And that's all the time that we have for today. Thank you again for tuning in to Security Ship. See you in the next episode.